0: What a Lord's Day uh, He's already given us. Baptism, prayer, song, a great privilege to hear from frontline cross-cultural missionaries. Uh, God is good to us, and uh, we ought to be thankful for the glimpses He gives us of His work around the world and reminded of exactly what we're a part of. It's my great joy to invite you this morning to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look together at verses 31 through 36. I'll invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect and precious Word of our sovereign God. Stand knowing that in the Scripture, and in the Scripture alone, we know the true story of the world. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? And who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, our distress, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our danger, our sword? As it is written, for your sakes, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Pray with me. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer. O great King with a kingdom that knows no end. We come to You this morning. And we pray, Lord, that You would transform us according to the truth of Your perfect and precious Word. We have sung today because You have revealed Yourself. We have prayed today Because you have revealed yourself to us, you bring us in by your grace into relationship with you. Lord, help us to see, hear, feel, think, and respond in ways that make much of you. Oh Lord, do what only you can do. May our lives never be the same because we have met you in your word this morning. Lord, we pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. From what the Bible says about Satan, how do you think he would want you to respond? this situation that is a question that i started using in counseling quite a few years ago that has been extremely helpful let's just stop and let's think about it how would satan want you to feel about this situation how would satan want you to think about this situation how would satan want you to respond to this situation And then let's follow that up by a second question. From what the Bible tells us about the triune God and what He has done for us in Christ, how do you think the Holy Spirit wants you to respond to this situation? How does the Holy Spirit want you to think about this situation? How does He want you to feel about it? And what do you think the Holy Spirit wants you to do? You know, in most cases, the person who is who was making complicated something that really was pretty simple. We, we oftentimes, as a defense mechanism, like to complicate things. If we complicate things and, and we, we're not sure, we say we're not sure what to do, we can do nothing. But, but if we sort of boil it down and crystallize it, it's not as hard as you're making it. What is it that the evil one would want you to feel Think and do in response to this? What in your best understanding do you think the Spirit of God would have you to feel, think, and do in response to that, this? It's almost always less a matter of understanding and more a matter of responding in the way we know we should. Life is a spiritual battle. We often do not frame it in that way. We often live as though we're just sort of living our lives and just need a little help here and there. But the Bible frames it as it really is. As a spiritual battle. Romans 8.31, the section that we're looking at this morning, begins with a question. And then it's followed by five more questions. This question is sort of a rhetorical device at the beginning that's used to transition and summarize all the way through Romans. We we find it in chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 7, chapter uh, 9, verse 4, chapter 9, verse 30, but we find it here in Romans eight thirty one. it's this, what then shall we say to these things? It it wants us to to sum things up. What what are these things? Well, in a sense, it's the whole message of the book, which is the the largest, most careful, logical, expressive treatise on the gospel of Jesus Christ that there has ever been. It starts out in the first three chapters talking about the reality uh, of human sin, something we, we can't wriggle out of. And then it starts talking to us about the Gospel. And in chapter 5 of Romans, it begins to to hone in on hope. And in chapter 5, through the section we're considering today are a a unit that are all about this this hope that the Gospel provides. Romans 5, verses 1-2 through says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand and we rejoice in, the ho- in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, verses 4 talks about hope after that. 5, verses 5 talks about hope after that. In Romans 8, six times there is a, a message of hope that is rooted in the reality of the Gospel that He by His grace through faith has made us children of God. We are the adoptive of God. We are are those in Christ who have the Spirit's help in all things. We are those in Christ who know that God has a good purpose in all things. And we are those who in Christ know that Christ Himself is the goal of all things. This births hope in our life. and, And now the question is there, what then shall we say to these things? And here's what he says in response to this amazing message of gospel hope, he offers five rhetorical questions. Five questions that are unanswerable. or There's a sense in which the answer is already supplied. They, they are rhetorical questions that, that make things clear. And in each one of them, one of the things to note is that there is a, a fact about Christ and what He has done for us. Something about the good news that centers on Christ in each one of those questions. And so those questions are pointing us to what Jesus has done for us. And they are designed to shape our response to all things. Talking about this section, uh, commentator Christopher Ashe says, when the accuser brings charges against Christians, he has to put a hand over his mouth when he sees the cross. So what Paul is doing here in summing all of this up is he is centering the cross. And he is, he is phrasing these questions in a, a particular way that, that the, the answer is inevitable. It has to do with Jesus. And because of Jesus, everything is to be different in our lives. And all of the things He wants us to embrace are the opposite Of the way the evil one would have us to feel, think, and do? Now, these are uh, questions, and and I'm going to frame it like this for us. In each one of these, there's a way that we are tempted to feel, tempted by the evil one, that is not the way we should feel. And the evil, Satan, is the accuser. The accuser of the brothers. And and there is a way that He sort of frames an accusation against us that reinforces how He wants us to feel. But in these questions, there is a gospel fact that changes the direction of our lives. Changes the directions of our feeling and our thinking. It's not that God doesn't want us to feel, but we are to feel based on fact. What the enemy, what the evil one, what Satan wants you to do, is to just simply react. To go with what's in your gut in every moment. Not to think, not to ponder, not to meditate, not to put something in a larger context. He just wants you to respond to it in the immediate. And when you respond to it in the immediate, the way you sort of immediately feel without thinking about anything bigger than you, then what He wants you to do is to put a story around it. And so you have this reflexive response that is centered on you and now you start to build a story around it and he says yeah live based on that and it doesn't matter whether your desire is to to do what we would see as good in that or bad in that it's that that doesn't include what's most important the most important fact of your lives Christ now I'm going to try to avoid a temptation. I'm going to try to avoid the temptation to over-explain these questions. And the reason I want to do that is because the reason he phrases it in questions and not assertions is because he wants us to think about it. He wants us to meditate on it. Not just somebody to tell you what it is, means but for you to think about it for you to embrace it for you to think about your life in relation to these questions these questions and what he's saying here is not hard to understand in fact there is a a duh quality to them right it's like obvious but think about it well oftentimes what is obvious we don't act as like it's obvious we need to pause and we need to think about it. You know, uh, I think about our kids, and one time one of our kids was, uh, was asking Judy to do something, and the answer was no. And, you know, they were acting as though they are being deprived of everything, and everybody else gets to do uh, this, and why couldn't they get to do this? And she just simply asked a question. She said, uh, I want you to stop right here. Those kids whose parents let them do whatever they want to do, would you describe them as happy and successful? And it's like, don't answer. I already know the answer. Go think about it, right? Because the answer is, those who do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it from the time they're a child are very unhappy and very unsuccessful and can't manage themselves very well. In other words, quit thinking about this moment as if this moment doesn't have a larger context. No, think about that. And the next time we say no about something, understand the context in which you should see it. There's a, there's a duh quality to it. No reason to overexplain. So what I want to do is to just give you sort of a a boost up to think about it. And so, I want us to see five gospel facts that are in these questions. Gospel fact number one, we find in the second part of Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, we are tempted to feel fearful. There's nothing the evil one wants you to feel more than feeling fearful. In in fact, the, the accuser's accusation often sounds kind of like this. Look around. Be afraid. Be very afraid. You'd be a fool not to be afraid. So many things are out of your control. Do you feel that accusation? You've been there. I've been there. What do you mean uh, I shouldn't be afraid? Don't you see all of these things that are happening all around us? Don't you see a, a government going a direction that, that, that they don't have any control over? Don't you see the way people have treated me? Don't you see the, what has happened in my life? Don't you see my physical problems? Don't you see all of these things? I would be an absolute fool not to be afraid. But the gospel fact is this. God is For us. God is for us. No matter who is against us. God is for us. No matter what is against us. Oh, there are plenty of things against us. There are people against us. There's our own indwelling sin that is against us. There are things out there that are set against us. There are authorities that are against us. There are circumstances that are against us. Often we are against ourselves. Death is against us. It can be and is against us. He makes clear in verse 35, there's, there's all kinds of things. There is tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, a sword that believers face. But the issue is this. But when compared to the fact that God is for us, there against us is of no real ultimate consequence. Now, that's not hard to understand. But you've got to embody it, you've got to embrace it, you've got to take it deep in your soul. It's got to be something more than cliche sounding. That when the real pain and difficulty in life comes is, ah, yeah, okay, but man, this, no, man, this has the answer to all of that. If God is for us, who can be against us? The greater to the lesser. There is no reason to be afraid in the ultimate sense. We can always uh, uh, moderate the things that we have, that immediate feeling of fear with this reality, and we are to be the most fearless people in the world. I remember uh, back in elementary school, it used to be a lot of after-school fights. I engaged in a few of them myself, but this time it was not me. There was a little bitty guy and... And there was this bigger guy, and they were going to fight after school. And this little bitty guy walked up with all kinds of swagger, and I thought, he's about to be killed. And and, and I was like, How, why is he acting like that? And then all of a sudden, as the other kid came out, that kid's big, gigantic brother came out. Now I know why he was acting like that. Because if he is for me, who are you to be against me? In other words, I'm not worried about you Because He is for me. You can be against me, but it's not going to get you anywhere. Now, if he didn't have a big brother to walk out, and he had not been afraid, he'd just been a fool. But the most logical thing in the world was for him to have that sense of swagger. This message is beautiful. I I love the words of Calvin here. This is the chief and only support which can sustain us in every temptation. For except we have God propitious to us, through all things, should smile on us, yet no sure confidence can be attained. But on the other hand, if His favor alone is sufficient solace in every sorrow, a protection sufficiently strong against all the storms of adversities, and on that subject there are many testimonies of Scripture which show the saints rely on the power of God alone, They dare despise whatever is opposed to them in the world. When I walk through the midst of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evils, for Thou art with me. In the Lord I trust. What shall flesh do to me? I shall not fear the thousands of people who beset me. For there is no power either under or above the heavens which can resist the arm of God. Having Him then as our defender, we have no need to fear harm whatever. Hence, he alone shows real confidence in God, who, being content with his protection, dreads nothing in such a way as to despond. The faithful are doubtless, often shaken, but are never utterly cast down. In short, the apostle's object was to show that the godly soul ought to rely on the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit and not depend on outward things. It's beautiful. Here's the gospel fact. What should we say to these things? We should say, I am sovereignly safe because of Christ. Second Gospel fact. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Now, we are tempted... To feel entitled. Satan wants you to be fearful, and he wants you to feel entitled. And he, he, he accuses you in, in this way. He says, look at all the things that you don't have. And others do. You're being cheated. You deserve more. That was the very temptation in the very beginning of the Bible in the garden. Oh, you can eat of all of these trees except that one He's cheating you. He's holding out on you. There is good for you if you have that that you will not have if you don't have it. This is the the very base sin of Satan. And he didn't just do it then. He's been doing it since. He wants you to look at your life. No matter what the circumstances are, you can always think that I don't have things that I ought to have. I don't have things that others have. I'm being cheated. I, I deserve more. Feeling entitled has nothing to do with how much you have. If you feel entitled, you could make list every day of, okay, if I had all of these things, then when you got all of those, you would still feel entitled to more. Because it's not something that can ever satisfy your soul. You can't come up with a list and meet the list and be satisfied. If you see the world in that way, you will always want more. And that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants you in on a treadmill. That you, Go a little faster and you'll get there. Go a little faster and you get there. And you never, ever really go anywhere. Gospel fact. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You see, you should say, I am fully and graciously supplied. That's the message here. He who did not spare his own son, an allusion back to Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac, except this time the son is the sacrifice. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The, the, The grammar here, there's a double accent on the son. He did not spare his own son. God the son. The most precious possession in the cosmos, the the inexpressible one, the undescribable one, the Son of God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. The word is handed him over for us, for us all handed him over. It's the same language that is used for Judas handing over Jesus. Octavius Winslow says about this verse, Ultimately, it was not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love that Jesus was handed over. He did not spare His own Son. Then how will He not? And that's emphatic in this sentence. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things. If He has given us this, why are you worried about lesser things? And by the way, everything is a lesser thing than Christ. Everything. If He has given you what is ultimate, then why would you worry about what is temporal? He has already committed Himself to you. Now, notice that it does not say all things we want. Oh no, it's, it's so much better than that. You, you sit there and, and sort of say to yourself, well, all things I want, I wish it said that. No, you don't. No, you don't. It is so much better than all things you want. Our wanters are so weak. Our wanters are so small and misguided. And He is the One who knows all the One who created all, the One who has given all, He gives all things we need, not we want, and He does it now and forever. And that's not just better than what we want, but in the end, it is way more than what we would want. You see, the message here is not only that our wanters are defective, but that they are small and shallow. It's not that God's not going to give you what you want. He's going to give you far less and say, make do. It's that you're not even capable of wanting in a way that makes sense. And that what God ultimately gives, though He says no to many things, what He gives is a yes that we would have wanted if we were as wise and knew all things like He does. You see, it's a, it's a leaning into to that. It's, it's a trust in that. I am fully and graciously supplied. He is committed to me. He did not spare His own Son. I can trust Him in all things. He is the God of all things who will give me all things I need now and forever in a way that I could never have given myself. C.S. Lewis says, we must always remember that we are half-hearted creatures who are so easily pleased. Sovereignly safe. Fully and graciously supplied. Gospel fact number three. Look with me at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, the temptation, uh, one of the other temptations of Satan in our lives, so not only that we would be fearful and entitled, these are are foundational temptations, but thirdly, that we would be guilt-ridden. The accuser sounds like this. Look at your sin. How could somebody like you even think about being forgiven? Go out and do more. Then maybe we can talk about it. You see, Satan always wants to turn Jesus in to someone who is demanding our works. And then pointing out that we never quite do enough. That you don't deserve to be forgiven unless you're this kind of person. And guess what? According to Satan, you're never that kind of person. The guilt that Satan wants our lives filled with is not based on any reality. It is almost always false guilt. What we ought to be doing, what what what, what uh, we have not done, what we should have done. I always like to give the example of you decide, you know, somebody's got a need, they need a meal, and you go over delivering the meal, and 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 Satan's gonna say, Why did you really do that? You just want people to think you're a a really good person. And by the way, you didn't deliver a meal to another person that you know is in need. Why did you deliver it to them? You delivered it to them just because you think you might be able to get something out of them. There's no win. Okay, you don't deliver the meal. Why didn't you deliver a meal to that person? That's the whole point. No win. Only guilt ridden which in your worst moments is total despair, and in your even worse than that moments, is you start thinking, I don't deserve to be ridden with this guilt. I deserve. I'm entitled to this. And then you're filled with a sense of fear knowing that you don't have the answer to any of this. It's always do more. And do it in a better way. But here's the gospel fact. It is God who justifies. You should say, I am justified by the sovereign judge. If the ultimate judge has declared you righteous, what does it matter what all the other judges in the world have to say, including Satan, who has determined that he is to be an accuser, who has appointed himself a judge, and all of those other voices that echo Satan in the world? What does it matter? I am justified by the sovereign judge. That is not to say I am not guilty. If I wasn't guilty, I wouldn't need to be justified. I was declared righteous by the righteousness of Christ. It is God who justifies. So who can bring any charge against God's elect? The word here, charge, is a word that's only used in legal context. It, it, who is to, uh, if you have been in the courtroom of God and God has justified you, declared you righteous on account of Christ, What does any other charge matter? It's ruled out of order in the beginning because this case is closed. Do, Do you know there's a difference between understanding that at an intellectual level and feeling that in the very core of your being? There's a difference. Remember, the section above this talks about how the Spirit brings us into family relationship with God. And so the judge who declares us righteous in Christ, who is now our elder brother we're united with, is the one whom now we cry out to, Father. Feel it. Experience it. Lean into it. Believe it. Think about it. A lot of times people say, you know, I feel really guilty because I didn't do this. And I'm like, well, who said you had to? Well, I just feel like I should do things like this. Who cares what you feel like, what you should do? Stop it. Now, you can say maybe I'm going to start doing that uh, uh, at a later. But but the guilt to, to act as though you've done something wrong. When it was never something that God ever said that you had to do is wrong. You don't honor God by embracing Satan's whispering false guilt. You honor God by repudiating Him. And by pointing to the One who has already judged you in Christ. It is God who justifies. We need to say it again and again and again. Accusers abound. Echoes of the adversary are all around. Jesus Himself was accused as a sinner and a blasphemer. But those accusations mean nothing. He is the risen Lord at the right hand of the Father. Oh, there, there's conviction that comes in our life for actual sin, but that should not leave us guilt-ridden. The the conviction that comes in our life from actual sin, we confess it, and He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the conviction that comes because of our actual sin ought to bring joy in our life because it's the restoration of relationship. But that is totally different than the false guilt that we often embrace because there is no answer to false guilt because it's false. That's what Satan wants you to live with. And Paul says, have you heard what I've said about the gospel from the first verse until now who shall bring any charge against God's elect it is God who justifies What should we say to these things that we're sovereignly safe that we're fully and graciously supplied and that we are justified by the sovereign judge Gospel fact 4 Romans 8:34 Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We, we saw in the last section, the, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Now we see here one of the many references of Christ interceding for us. If we are in Christ, He is our advocate. It's the climax of assurance, the work of the great sovereign and triune God that didn't just do something, then back away, but constantly is at work making intercession for us. But it's another one of those legal words here. Now, we are tempted to feel condemned. My counseling for over around 30 years now has made me realize that there are many people who name the name of Christ, but they live with a feeling and a spirit of condemnation. They name the name of Christ, but they don't live like a child of Christ. Child of God. They live like an orphan. They are unsure, unsteady. They they feel condemned. They haven't done enough. The accuser comes in and says, how could you escape God's condemnation? You condemn yourself, and rightly so. You you can't even live up to your own standards. How could you propose to live up to God's standards? Of course you are condemned. And the gospel fact, Christ Jesus is the one who died, was raised is at the right hand of the Father, who is indeed interceding for us, you should say, I am under no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's the way verse 1 of chapter 8 starts. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know how the chapter ends in verse 39? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. Nothing separating us from the love of God. So when you feel condemned, if you are in Christ, it is not the Holy Spirit of God prompting that feeling. It is to be rebuked and repudiated. And you are to embrace what God has said. What the Spirit would have you to declare. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's at the right hand of God. He is at the seat of authority. He is our advocate. He is interceding for us. The indwelling Spirit is interceding for us. We have this climax of assurance here. And by the way, it's an echo of Isaiah 50, verses 8 and 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. I kind of like that. I'm going to put that as a verse on the fridge. All the, all the condemners, uh, all, all, all of the people uh, pointing you in a direction outside of the gospel on this this works-based treadmill, they, they will all be done away with in the end. God will vindicate His people, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Not because we have declared ourselves uh, able and sufficient, but because we know that we are helpless what we declare in the baptistry this very morning. Nobody dealt with this issue of condemnation like the reformer Martin Luther. He says here, Set yourself against Satan and say, What is it to you? After all, I did not sin against you, but against my God. I am not your sinner, Satan, so what right do you have over me? Therefore, if I have sinned, and what you're accusing me of is truly a sin, for Satan often terrifies the mind with imaginary sins, then I have sinned against the God who is merciful and patient. God is not a devil like you. He is not a devourer a carnivore as you are, terrifying and threatening with death. He is merciful to sinners, perfect and incorruptible, faithful and righteous. Against such a God, I have sinned. I have not sinned against a tyrant and a murderer. Therefore, as a tyrant and a murderer, you have no right over Me. God has the right who is kind and merciful and who therefore forgives the sin of those who confess. That's it. Repudiate the evil one. But but do you see how this takes meditation? Thinking about it? Reframing how you see the world? See, Satan has has a great a great asset, and that is that, that so often we are so superficial. And so often we, we so go with what we immediately feel. And we don't tend to spend a lot of time thinking, okay, the gospel, yeah, I get the facts of that. Maybe I've got a track over there, refresh myself. Like, like it's something over there. Paul says it's not over there, it is Everything. You have to see everything in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the point of these these questions. Who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, it was raised who is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. If Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for you, how can you be condemned? You could only be condemned if Christ is condemned. And Christ will never be condemned. Think it out. Embrace it. Pound it in your head. Seek it in your heart. Remind yourselves of these gospel facts that come to us in these duh questions. Gospel fact number five. Verse 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He gives seven possibilities here. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This is a comprehensive explanation of all of the sorts of and kinds of difficulties they face. These are the things Satan likes to come in and use as, as, as tools to have leverage to say, how could you be loved? Look at what you're going through. But it is all rooted here in this phrase, the love of Christ. See, we're tempted to feel unloved. The accuser's accusation is, look at the pain, the suffering, the heartache. How could you be loved when you have to go through all of this? After all, isn't he supposed to be sovereign? Does he really love you if he allows you to go through all of this? What's the gospel fact? The love of Christ. I am united with Christ in love. Now, you've got to think about it a little bit. The love of Christ. What does that mean? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What? Oh, oh the love of Christ means that the One who loves us suffered for us in a way that none of us could ever know the horrors of that suffering. Whatever He accomplished on the cross, He paid a debt that we couldn't pay with a billion years in hell itself. The One who has suffered more than any could imagine imagined. He was on the cross not for His sin, for He had none, but for the sins who would believe in Him. Oh, when you think about your suffering, it's transformed by the reality of the cross. The one who says there's meaning and purpose in your suffering and you can know love in the midst of it is the one who has expressed that love by the suffering itself. That's why He can say, take up your cross and follow Me. you got to think that out. The Gospel fact, the love of Christ, teaches us that good, eternal good, can come from suffering, difficulty, and heartbreak. And I, no matter what I go through, I am someone who is united with Christ in love, and none of those things will separate me from His love. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. By the way, that's from Isaiah 44.22. And Isaiah 44.26 ends like this, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. No matter what we go through. You will redeem us for the sake of Your steadfast love. The love of Christ, that is a gospel fact now and forever. Every day, every moment, with every thought, every feeling, every action, we are making a choice. The accuser or the advocate. That's the choice. What shall we say to these things? Well, we should say gospel facts. But we are to feel them. We are to think on them. And we are to respond based on them. You should say this. I am sovereignly safe. I am fully and graciously loved. I am justified by the sovereign judge. I am under no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And I am united to Christ in love. And you should say it again and again and again for all eternity. Let us pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your perfect and precious Word. Lord, it is so glorious. It is so filling. But Lord, help us to to do what we are to do with these questions. Help us to think about them. Help us to embrace them. Help us to feel them. Help us to think. Think afresh and anew. Help us, Lord, to respond to them. Oh, Lord, we're all here today. May we walk a different path because we have met Jesus in His Word and we have heard His Gospel. Whether that be to put faith in Christ for the first time or whether that be to walk differently because Christ never stops loving us by changing us. O oh Lord, may we respond to what shall I say to these things in the way the Spirit has taught us. And may we keep learning until the end of the age and beyond. In Christ's name we pray, amen.